All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed episode one. Um, well, I know I sure did. But anyways, um, yeah, so again, thank you. Special thanks go out to Jan Irvin for uh, linking me up with Gene. Uh, special thanks to Gene for just being awesome, man, and, and just pouring wisdom and sharing um, sharing your experiences in life. Um, special thanks to... Um, Special thanks to Michael Espinoza for reaching out and hollering at me on uh, through email. I really appreciate it. Please go to GoFundMe.com. Look for Send Drew to the Jackalope Freedom Festival. If you just search for Jackalope Freedom Festival, pull it up. Please donate any amount of money. It is much appreciated. You actually contribute it. Contributing is a way better term. Great marketing word. Contribute. Also, please, if you have money, though, first contribute to Izzy Rock. Go to um, go to uh, um, GoFundMe dot com, and then search for Izzy Rock's podcast. Izzy's trying to get a new laptop. He's trying to up his podcast game. Izzy uh, Izzy's the reason why most of us have podcasts um, in the Inspired Disorder Collective. Uh, especially thanks to the Inspired Disorder Collective. I never say thank you, Ray Taylor, anymore because I am a jerk. Anyways, Ray Taylor, thank you for everything that you do. Anyways, guys. Um, here is part two. Um, there's no technical errors. Um, and then hopefully I can schedule a part three with Gene soon. Thank you guys so much and enjoy.
Okay, one more time, huh? <laughs> Let's. I say we try to. Uh, so if it becomes a big issue, it's probably more going to be due to, to uh, um, traffic in my neighborhood, just internet traffic. So okay. what I was going to propose is if it if it happens again, I was wondering what if you would be willing to come on again and possibly record. Sure. Um, okay, cool. And then the next time we can. Uh, Usually, if we do it early in the morning, like it's. Uh, I was just going to suggest that. Yeah. yeah, because like now, like most people are on, they're probably streaming their Netflix and getting right. their Xbox and all that stuff, and just. And uh, yeah, and it's it's a well known fact that uh, the internet providers like to throttle internet speed, so um, or throttle bandwidth. But anyways, Gene, we were talking about. Um, oh man, I'm trying to remember what you were just talking about. Well, I'm talking about the second mode of general human thought okay the mythological and now we're in the philosophical and the difference between the philosophical and the mythological is that when we try to explain natural phenomena in the mythological we most easily identify with people persons or things that we've already seen like animals so we created this supernatural world to explain the natural world and then people came along three, four, five, six thousand years ago, maybe in 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 um, Asia first, and they they wanted to explain things as they saw it. In other words, not deal with with another super world, another dimension to explain this dimension. So. Um, uh, Thales of Miletus, a Greek, uh, was trying to explain um, earthquakes. And he looked at the natural phenomenon itself and did away with, with the motivations and all these other things that, that uh, the gods may be involved with. And uh, by asking the question... This was later devised in, into a, uh, a, a complete system by, by uh, a successor to both um, uh, Thales and Pythagoras, who coined the word uh, philosophy, uh, by another Greek philosopher named Plato. And he made a system of this. And the system that he came up with was for a moral philosophy – uh, and he said that there are four questions that must be asked and answered in order to explain things in the natural world. And the first question that you ask is, what is? What is it? It's, it's the largest, greatest question we can ask, just simply, what is? And the second question that we ask is, how do we know? How do we as humans know what is? And the third question we ask is now that we have an inkling of what is and an idea of how we know what is, how do we best act? How do we act to advantage as individuals of men, uh, man individuals, and as groups of men in a what they called a polity? Or how do we act in tribes, in nations, in, uh, in groups with, of like-minded individuals. So this is essentially um, trying to define a moral code based on what we think is and how we know what is. And then the fourth question we ask is, once we have an inkling of what is, how we know what is, and how we act, what, what are the advantageous thoughts and actions that we can utilize, how do we communicate this to others of our kind? And we can pass it on to others in our polity, in our immediate polity, and also to other generations. And uh, the technical words for these four um, branches are the first one, what is metaphysics? The second one, how do we know what is? That's called epistemology. The third one is how do we best act? And, of course, we're familiar with this term. It's, it's called uh, uh, morality or, or uh, 
um, best action. And the third one is called aesthetics. And that is how we communicate this. And it's not only through through literature, but it's through art, through painting, through sculpture, through uh, architecture, and then through uh, the performing arts, um, like music and dance and drama. So by a- asking and answering those four questions, we can look directly through epistemology. How do we know what is? And... Um, uh, it wasn't – Plato still had this idea of a supernatural world, what he called the world of forms. And in this world of forms were perfect examples of everything that we, that we see or that we sense with our five senses. And it was up to his student, Aristotle, to really start to emphasize the five senses, that how we know what is is through observation. And so by, by saying this, he, he came up with uh, an explanation as to what the next mode of thought is going to be, which is scientific. We have the mythological, the philosophical, and now by looking at the natural world through our five senses and coming up with a way to demonstrate something, what later became known as an experiment, a physical experiment, in, in Aristotle's term, if you demonstrate something, then you are getting closer to the truth of the matter. And it took, uh, oh, a long time, several, a couple of thousand years after Aristotle before uh, Francis Bacon started to hint during the Elizabethan times uh, the idea of the scientific method, which is to observe this this would be closer to the epistemology in in philosophy. Observe what is, and of course, what is would be correlative to metaphysics in in philosophy. By the way, metaphysics is includes everything. It includes not only the physical world, but also the mental world. So the world of imagination, and and in the way that. Aristotle, or actually the guy who, who, who was explaining Aristotle, came up with the term. His name was Andronicus of Rhodes, and he wrote about 250, 300 years after Aristotle. And he was, he was editing Aristotle's works, and he had just finished editing the works on Aristotle's physics, or what was called physica. And one of the, the words for meta in Greek uh, means after. So when he started to talk about metaphysics or the question of what is, what is everything, it was after he finished talking about what is visible to the or sensible to the five senses. And so this is the world of imagination and, and uh, all, all mental phenomena rather than just the intellectual. It included what, what we now term the emotional and possibly the intuitive uh, aspects of mind. So it's greater. Philosophy has to do more with all aspects of being than does science, which is concerned with the physical world. So uh, Francis Bacon came up with this hint, and then later um, Galileo used Bacon's ideas to um, try to understand parts of of uh, how of what what is gravity or or how does motion occur, and uh, he started rolling balls down down inclines. Galileo did, and he found that that uh, heavy balls and light balls came to the end of the incline at the same time. And then he started doing the same thing off the, the Tower of Pisa and found that the heavy and light balls uh, hit the ground at the same time. Yet when he dropped a feather, uh, it, didn't, it didn't hit the ground. It, it, it took a long time and, and had a circuitous route down to the, 
down to the surface. So there was another force acting upon it. And of course, this was uh, aerodynamic force, which he didn't identify at that time. But this is what started us on this idea of, of utilizing this uh, four parts of of the scientific method. And of course, this is what uh, Isaac Newton used in his laws of motions, uh, laws of motion and mechanics, and his his work on starting to identify the effects of gravity. And from there, we've we've gone on to use the scientific method uh, when we can demonstrate something and devise a technology, a usable technology from it. Then we we're said to be using the scientific method, but you can see where you have to use a philosophy of science to address the concerns that you observed just a while ago in saying that a lot of science today seems to be about publishing ideas rather than publishing the results of an experiment which can be put together by anybody else or a repeatable experiment. So these things that are more aptly called hypotheses, which is a guess as to what uh, a phenomenon might be, rather than a demonstration of what a phenomenon might be, and a statement of explanatory theory after the completion of the experiment goes off, is what we see in science today. It's, it really is kind of a publishing game. And if people considered it, if the public, if the general public considers this more of a hypothetical uh, explanation of the direction of science, rather than as being the truth of the matter that's being explicated, this is, again, is where your own judgment comes in, so that you become your own authority as to what science is and how it's being explained to you. And you use this same judgment that that you're trying to to uh, uh, utilize with science. You use that in politics. You use that in religion. You use that in mythology. Now, it's when all three of these are understood by the student, the mythological, the philosophical, and the scientific, where you can see the use of each one of them. The mythological actually came up with – without – realizing it, came up with all questions that we are capable of asking, not only of what is in the natural world or what is it that we see uh, as we see in science, but all questions, all questions involved with that as well as what comes out of our imaginations, including what comes out of our imaginations under the influence of psychedelics. And this is where you see all this uh, literature that, that we call ancient uh, sacred literature having come from, from these, these uh, psychedelic experiences of our, of our distant ancestors. And uh, so that's where mythology really has, I find, if you look at it properly, uh, explanations or attempted explanations of things that we're that we're curious of, and then mythology or uh, philosophy. It's really the t first two branches of, of philosophy, which apply to everything, to all uh, material. The philosophy of science, the philosophy of politics, not only the philosophy of ethics or the moral philosophy that was devised by by Plato, but we have philosophies of literature, philosophies of this, that, and the other. And, and what those philosophies relate to is what do we know about mathematics and how do we know that about a specific branch of mathematics? What do we know about literature and how do we know about that literature? Now, some of this literature um, in, in what I call experimental science as opposed to theoretical science, what's come to be known as theoretical science, is what is to be taken literally and what is to be taken figuratively. Now you can go back and make the connection to mythology. What is to be taken literally 
and what is to be taken taken figuratively. What in in sacred texts are the lessons that are trying to be taught figuratively? What in science are the are the uh, phenomena that have been demonstrated as opposed to those that have been hypothesized and published. So you can see the, the interrelationship of all three of these modes. And after you practice with them a little bit and investigate the various uh, literature uh, that's available for each, again, you start to be developing your own judgment so that you are your own personal authority in all three of those modes. Your worldview is, is uh, informed by those three modes. And again, satisfaction starts to come up. Your actions, those things that you can take action with, plus your uh, the the motivation for those actions what what is it that you want out of life what is it that you can affect in life all of these start to to be informed by all this stuff running in the background by by the trivium the, the beginning point running in the background as you would say in in, in uh, computer uh, lingo all this starts running in the background, the myth, the mythopoeic. You can start looking at religious teachings, and rather than taking it literally, what is the lesson being taught through this story? Uh, the philosophic, what is the particular philosophy, uh, if, it, if it's a, a moral philosophy? Where, where is that going? Is it, is it a philosophy that serves a small number at the expense of all others? Or is it a philosophy that is essentially win-win, a philosophy of peace and plenty? Um, so that you can go to a libertarian conclave and, and uh, discern, you know, what, what is doable and what isn't. What is uh, useful to you and, and to your circle and finally to, to humanity and the planet. And then go to, to the scientific literature or to the news, <laughs> the so-called news, and uh, discern. Use your judgment with all these factors uh, having been developed in, in the neurology of your personal brain to uh, discern reality from unreality. And, and I like stating it like that reality from unreality rather than reality from fiction or fact from fiction because a lot of unreality is usable as i say much much of the the morality that's that's explained uh in in mythological poems are usable they they've never existed as such but they still teach a lesson if you're willing to listen to the lesson, if you're willing to put yourself into the, into the place of the, the person who was trying to explain at that time. And uh, so forth with, with all the philosophies, the moral philosophies, and the philosophies of all other established um, intellectual subjects that we've come up with. And by doing this, you can be a an integral part of your personal life, the people that are around you, your relatives, your friends, the people that you want to influence in a positive fashion. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That was, it really, you really just took everything full circle from when we first started talking. Um, yeah, that makes, uh, that makes a ton of sense. I don't, I don't really, uh, I don't really have much to add to that, Gene. I've just been kind of sitting here processing everything. You just, uh, you just gifted me with all the wisdom you just gifted me with. I was I was thinking about uh, what you were saying about mythology, um, and recently, like I've I've become like a pretty big fan of reading uh, Philip K. Dick because I love, oh yeah mm-hmm. I love the way he introduced ideas via science yes. fiction, and I was watching an interview with him, and he because he ended up moving to France because um, he said that America was anti-intellectual. 
and that uh, because the only thing they wanted to publish was westerns in space instead of actually using science fiction for what it could really do, which was introduce intellectual ideas that you might not be able to contextualize um, in, in our everyday world in a, in a fantasy futuristic world. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was I was just thinking about like mythology and literature, and I guess you could say like fiction or science fiction um in a sense would would kind of be like modern day you could use as modern day mythology and i was just thinking like that or if you wanted to if i i don't know i mean i think about writing a lot personally and 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 you know i i would like i've i've been kind of inspired just by reading philip k dick and like the sense of like his ideas today are very applicable to what we're in his stories and i think it's um it's it's just been kind of like uh, I don't know that so when you were talking about mythology and using everything and that that just really kind of resonated with me. Well, yeah, that that's why I'm saying uh, uh, at my age I've seen the the various times in my life when I not only uh, learned about the trivium and started to use it, but it, it's a recurring pattern, it's a recurring theme, and then as I learned, I started to learn about about science first and then uh, uh, philosophy and then it was only in in later life after I was 30 uh, that I, I started to really get interested in, in mythology uh, and I saw that the interconnection of it all because Mythology, as I say, once once you start looking at it as as a discipline in itself, and not just Western but Eastern mythology, uh, I got most of my background in mythology and a lot of philosophy from Will Durant. Will Durant came out with um, an eleven. He he was a Canadian Canadian born, but he lived in the U.S. Uh, in the middle. Of, of the 20th century, he came out with an 11-volume uh, historical uh, series that he called the uh, of history. Could you repeat that? It cut out right when you went, right when you said the title. I'm sorry about okay. that. Okay, actually, it was he came up with the title of of his 11-volume uh, work was called the Story of Civilization. And the first he came out with these over a period of forty years, but the very first one of the uh, volumes by Will Durant is called Our Oriental Heritage, and it's a big book. I mean, it's uh, I don't know twelve, fourteen hundred pages. Well, no, nine hundred and some odd pages. Uh, but it came out in nineteen thirty-five, so I keep that in mind when I read it. And I first read it when I was in my mid twenties that this came out in 1935. And when you read it, it's just unbelievable how the the patterns of the past are just are just replayed over and over and over again with slight variations, certain modifications. But we think that what we're going through today is is new and unique and it, it's just a replay. It really is just a replay after having read that book. And another um, book that, or, or series of books that I'd recommend, which anybody will find uh, enlightening as well as entertaining, is called, uh, and this is a modern book or series of books, and it's The Cartoon History of the, of the World. That sounds pretty It's written awesome. by Larry, Larry Gonick. The Cartoon History of the and, World. That sounds pretty yeah. awesome. There's uh, two or three um, original volumes, and he takes a lot of of, of his um, explanation from uh, Will Durant. But the thing is, you can I, I think it was it was about three years ago. Uh, my wife got me the the history of the world, the cartoon history of the world. And uh, I believe it was three volumes. I've since given them away. But I read the three volumes in two weeks. And having had some background in history, 
in in these sweeping histories. I also read uh, another good one is a is a two volume set of the outline uh, the outline of uh, history by H. Um, G. Wells. But when you get these sweeping views of of what has been told what what we remember what what has come down to us as having been history uh you really see how how patterned we are but reading it over a two week period of time in in the cartoon history uh brings your your mind together you know you you really encompass what what has occurred in the past and where we might be going in the future and uh, you mentioned Philip K. Dick, and I, I saw a lot of this patterning in, in a couple of works that I read of his. And, of course, there are several movies that are, that are pretty provocative that, uh, that he influenced. But he, he seemed to have that integrated view. Yeah, it's interesting, too, uh, his use of psychedelics in his stories and alien psychedelics. Uh, I don't, I don't know if you ever checked out the three Sigmata of Palmer Eldritch. Yes. Yes. That's one of the ones that I've read. Uh-huh. That, that book is so fascinating. Like I, I I'm going to read it again and it's just like, and it's, it's just like the, uh, the part where like they go, they take, he takes the alien drug and then he ends up being a phantasm in the future. And mm-hmm. the evolved humans are like, yeah, the damn people in this century, all they did was do this crazy drug and they show up here all the time. And it's like, man, it was so funny because it's just like, man, like there's weird things that we do as humans and there's weird things that like we don't under, it's like we don't see the insanity of what we're doing until it's like, it's, it's until it's like, it's too late. And, uh, and, and I feel like, I, man, and then it's it's like I look at like uh, the nation building that's going on with the United States, and I look at like like it, it, we've been doing it for so long, and now like there's this chess match that's going on between Vladimir Putin and Barack Obama, and people don't see it. Like I, I feel like people people aren't even witnessing it because in their minds, the United States is still the world police, and they're not like seeing like man, there's there's some there's some serious. I feel like there's some serious shit that's really going on in the background, but um, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Well, like I say, the place to start is with the question, and and you've just outlined a lot of current events, and the question is, how did the U.S. become the world police? How is it that there is a world police? What is the U.S.? You know, there's a lot of questions as to what's going on and and you've got to follow those to to some kind of satisfying conclusion within your own mind but i used to have that that mentality that why can't people see it and that that's actually one of the reasons uh, back in 2009 that i got in touch with jan Irvin. um i had just gone through an experience and possibly you'll do the same. We all seem to be doing it about the same time in our early to mid-50s is something that's not discussed that much in here in America. It's discussed more in, in Europe, uh, just as, as the difference between prepubescence and postpubescence is known to us here very, very acutely, that, that there is a body and brain change between childhood and and uh, the teenagers, adolescents. And then it's fairly stable after uh, pubescence, up to about age 55, and our body and brain chemistry is fairly stable. But um, it occurred with me right on the money at age 55 is I just started to have a lot of chatter in my brain at night. I couldn't sleep. It was, and it, it wasn't... Uh, uh, it wasn't about any particular thought. It was just it was just chatter. So luckily, the internet was around by that time, and I'd actually been warned of this by several people in my youth, and I, I just hadn't recalled or remembered it and didn't know what it was about. And I went around the internet, and sure enough, it's mentioning this um, body and brain change um, that occurs around age fifty-five. It's when the testosterone level and 
in males starts to decline, and it allows the uh, the estrogen level that is within the male body to start asserting itself more. So we become more sensitive. And what was occurring with me is I'd, for some reason, I, whenever I came, when I was driving and I came to a stoplight, I'd start crying. I'd start weeping. And it wasn't for that I had anything in mind. It, I wasn't recalling uh, anything of any sadness in my past or anything at all. There were, yeah, I was just starting to weep. And uh, in females, their estrogen level starts to decline and the testosterone that's in their body starts to assert itself. And I think this is a natural situation. Females outlive males and they become more assertive as they get older and more, more self-reliant uh, as they get older uh, after their, their age 50. So this is, this is truly our, our midlife, what we want to call crisis. And it's, it's called that in, in Europe. Uh, it's called the, the midlife crisis in your 50s. Here in the United States, that has come down to, to mean age 40. And I was reading someplace where there was some kind of statistical study done that more people are, are unhappy and dissatisfied at age 40 in the United States. And you go to Europe and most people are, are uh, dissatisfied at age 54 and, and unsatisfied. Um, and this is more in keeping. Now, what's I think has occurred, and this is just my own opinion, what's occurred here in the United States is we had this youth movement that really took off in the in the late forties, all through the fifties and sixties. And and youth, regardless of your age, you you try to remain youthful and healthy, and so on and so forth. And so when you hit age forty, you're already starting to to uh, think that your youth is starting to dissipate and so on and so forth. And, and you're right, it is. <laughs> but in, in Europe, they, they accept that, you know, it's just being part of life. But then they, they hit this physiological barrier at age 54. And many people that I've, I've spoken to, and you've got to be of that age before you speak to people who've, who've experienced it. And yeah, I've had a lot of chatter in my head and, and a lot of, uh, uh, emotional, uh, emotions just popping up for no reason amongst men. And, uh, women don't notice it so much, but they are becoming more self-sufficient, more aggressive. And they also experience the chatter, or many of them do. So uh, it's the only time in my life that I that I went to a to a physician, to a doctor, to to uh, diagnose and 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 treat this. And he gave me some antidepressants, and I took those for about three months. And I started to sleep at night, and then I weaned myself off of them. And for a period of two years after that, all of my dreams, I would start dreaming these they weren't really vivid dreams but they these dreams I would wake up every morning a, with an epiphany with an aha and oh that's how that works oh that's how this is connected to that what was occurring is I was starting to integrate uh, events and experiences and thoughts throughout my life and this Although you're not truly aware of it when you're when you're um, a pubescent adolescent, this is when when what you've learned in childhood is starting to make sense. This is when you start questioning. This is when you start analyzing all the 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 uh, all of the knowledge that you gained as a child is now starting to be understood. You're starting to ask. Where are the contradictions in this knowledge that I picked up and how can I get rid of them? So this is where the analytical stage, this is when you can start to study logic, which, as I say, I was starting to be presented with by, a, by this dentist mentor when I was 13, 14 years old. He was starting to introduce logic to me because I was, I was ready to, to accept it physiologically. So I went through this two-year period of time. And so many things started to coalesce 
they they started to make sense. Oh, this is how this is connected to that, and so on and so forth. And one of the things that that connected was uh, a psychedelic experience that I had at age eighteen uh, with six other people when I was in college. There they were two graduate assistants. They were chemical engineers who either synthesized LSD themselves in the lab or they put together some kind of concoction uh, and came up with this idea that we would have three people take it and three people babysit, watch, and then those three would take it, so on and so forth. So we took it. Uh, I was the local guy in town, and they didn't know how to, how to take it. So that's how they brought me in, is they didn't know how to ingest it. And so I knew the local drug dealer, and so he told me to put it on. I, I, I traded some, some of this concoction to him for his telling me to uh, put it on a cube of, of sugar and hold it under your tongue. So we went back and we tried that. And sure enough, we had this, what I have come to find was, was an extremely um, deep uh, psychedelic experience. Because I, I didn't stay within that. I, I took the psychedelic twice uh, in in a one-week period of time. And that's the only psychedelia I've ever done in my life. But I, I really wasn't too interested in in continuing. I was interested in... Um, what you'd learned or what Interpreting you what I had learned, yes. Yeah. And that's what made me sensitive to mythology is that a lot of the experience I, I had are written about, you know, in sacred texts. And this is what got me in contact with, with uh, Jan Irvin. He and Andrew Rutaji wrote their book, uh, Astrotheology and Shamanism, and I ordered it. And here's where I understood. All of a sudden, it hit me that this is what mythology is. After having read that book, it was a lot like reading the cartoon history of the modern world, you know, in, in a two-week span of time. I was in the midst of that book, and I, well, of course. <laughs> that's what I was having. I was having, that's what mysticism is, because I've always concentrated on defining what a term or what a concept is. And, and my question up to that point in life was, what is mysticism? And, of course, this is what it is. And um, it starts to open up a, a whole lot of other questions, you know, like this idea of everybody looks at uh, the Christian idea of original sin, um, or actually the Abrahamic uh, religion ideas of original sin, the, the sin of Adam and Eve coming down to all of us, or the deficiency of humanity, or the, the idea that we're not perfect beings. Well, this leads to the scientific ideas of of uh, genetics of course uh strong and weak traits are are uh passed on from generation to generation and in one sense you can look at this as uh, i hesitate to, to say original sin because there are a lot of these organizations that as as i say have used this to their advantage by by uh uh, tapping into our feelings of guilt, but in a sense, the the first human, or the first of our species of human, uh, had these deficiencies and these strengths. Uh, so the potential for godhood was seen through these psychedelic uh, instances throughout the ages. And if you've ever experienced them, you, you can see, you can see the, the parallels of the interpretations that they have come up with, with your own interpretations. Now, one of the interesting things that, that we had uh, with these, this group of six people when I was in college was that it was put together by, by a couple of PhD. One was a postdoc PhD and the other one was, was a, uh, a PhD candidate. And they put this together as, a, as an experiment. And they, it was very well thought out. And none of us 
none of the six of us was was particularly religious. So only one of us was was a really studied uh, uh, Christian. He he knew the Bible quite well, and in his experiences, particularly because he was very articulate, he saw the the characters in the Bible, and he he spoke with them, walked with them, and and his experiences were were more real than the experience of our talking about it right then in our in our little. Uh, session after our experiences. Uh, the things he saw were more real than what he was looking at with his eyes right now or, or smelled. They were more distinct and so on and so forth. And, and uh, everyone else had, had something of what they had already experienced, but it was in this super uh, realm, in this supernatural realm. And I... I was the youngest, so I, I really didn't I, – I just kind of related what I went through, but I really didn't try to explain what I thought was the difference between my experience and the five of theirs. They all thought that they had gone to this other realm, that they were in the portal to this supernatural realm. That's the way they explained it, whereas because I had been studying dentistry – and head and neck anatomy to to a fair degree at that point when I was 18 because I had been studying with this dentist and had been studying a little bit about about neurology and and knew that the self uh, our sense of self was in our right temporal lobe of the brain you know that was its physical location and a lot of people with epilepsy have much of these same experiences, especially temporal lobe epilepsy. And so when I went through this experience, I specifically had the idea that I was exploring my mind and my, my brain. I wasn't in some other dimension. It was all an exploration of myself. And I think that those people who, like Thales of Miletus, who decided to look at what was around them rather than imagining themselves in this other dimension uh, are the ones who develop philosophy. Something of this idea that I'm looking within myself, within my own mind. And the mind, essentially, of all creatures on this planet of whose DNA is reflected within me. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but it wasn't until I read uh, Jan and, and Ritaji's, uh, Andrew Ritaji's book that it hit me that that's what all these other people were experiencing. Now, that seems so obvious to me now that, that that's what mythology is. But until I was 55 or 56, you know, it, it didn't hit me. And and I just didn't I couldn't believe how it escaped me. <laughs> so I have a lot of empathy for people who don't get it. <laughs> because it was staring me right in the face and I didn't get it. That's fascinating. Yeah. I, I um I've had a couple experiences only with psychedelics myself because I I don't feel like uh it was like one of those things like I used it because I like I'd done a lot of research and I I'd read like the um the article about how psilocybin could permanently positively change your personality and uh I was like I was I was supposed to start a new job and it, it fell through and I, I wasn't really necessarily on a good path per se for in my opinion of myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I wanted to ask myself some deep questions. So I, I took some, I ate like an eighth of mushrooms and uh, my buddy kind of watched me and babysat me. And um, I, like it, it kind of to me, like it, it, it like was like I went in some really dark places and then uh, then it just kind of hit me that like, you know, you're just the, your issue is you're looking outside instead of inside. Yeah, yeah. And it was like you know, as long as you love yourself, you know, and you really love yourself, even though it's really hard to do, that's just going to permeate 
and you're just going to treat everybody else with love. And then everybody else is just going to want to be around you. And it was just like, I kind of had that realization. And then I, and then it, then I just kind of started on this journey with the podcast and everything. And then it was like, it went from me listening to podcasts to like trying to interact with people that I thought were interesting and that I had questions for, or that I kind of wanted to, to pick their brain and bounce things off of, you know, their, their idea or their view and kind of like, kind of try to incorporate it in my own. So, um, it's, it's interesting because it's a useful tool. And, uh, and then like, you know, looking at Jan's research and everything else and like how psychedelics can also be really misused is also really interesting. But then like, I I think about, um, people, I used mushrooms again a second time and I did it with people that weren't doing it for the same reasons that I was. And I saw that they weren't using it to try, to try to get some wisdom out or to try to get some resolve, but they were really doing it so they wouldn't have to deal with themselves. Yeah. Yes. And it was, um, and, and I think that it's, it, it kind of goes back to the whole thing that you, you can't say that they're good or bad. It's just, it's just the way it's like, I feel like, uh, humanity, like we want to, we want to either demonize something or we want to, we want to put a, we we want to make it things just like cut and dry. Like this is bad and this is good. But in a lot of times, like it's, you can't do that. And in a lot of times it's like, you, you have to like, and I, and I think it's, it's, you know, you, you have to educate yourself or you have to be aware of yourself enough to know what you're doing. And I, so I don't, I, I think it's still interesting though. And I think it's, um, you know, like, like Jan's definitely blown my mind with a lot of stuff that he's come on. And then like, when like when I'll read it, um, like the manufacturing the deadhead and the uh, the like Jim Morrison's dad being the same person who planned the Gulf of Tonka, and it was just like whoa, that's that's that that's that's kind of really fascinating. There, <laughs> it's like there's some really interesting connections there, and you know I'm not going to jump to any conclusions yet, but I tell you what, there's something definitely going on there. And, and I think it's, and, and instead people are just like, well, the doors represent this. And it's like, and I feel like Jan, um, he brings down the dogmas, like the social dogmas of like, or the demigods that people, you know, cause people want a hero. They don't, they don't make themselves their hero. And I think like, you know, and I think that when you put it like to be, for me, when you said the art of living, like that's what the art of living is, is, is kind of like being your own hero or being in a way that you can influence people you love. And, uh, so yeah, so thank you so much, Gene, for, for talking to me today. I'd love to have you on again in the future, man. Every, even after our, all of our technical issues, we went and recorded for another 50 minutes. So (laughs) (laughs) I could keep talking to you all day, but I'd love to have you on again. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really uh it's been super beneficial for me to have you on and and for you to share your wisdom with me and it's really going to I'm really going to take some things to the lab and just kind of like um kind of just look at my approach differently like when you were you're going over some things and I was just sitting there listening and things in my head like even though like I'm all about conversing like I don't always do that like sometimes I still have an emotional response to somebody's argument because it drives me so crazy. And it's like, in reality though, it, for me, like I have to keep in mind, I have to go back to, you know, people don't, people don't ask questions the same way I do. And I think there's a responsibility that I have because I've come to some realizations that I need to really embrace patience. And I really need to embrace things that I don't always embrace or values that are important to me. Um, but it's like, I guess it's all part of the path of like continuing to educate and better yourself and, and grow as a human being. So, um, let me, uh, let me comment on what you just specifically, uh, explained that sometimes you get personal or, or you get emotional in conversation with people. And here, here's, a an example of where mythology helped me. And uh, I was quite young when I came across this. Uh, and it's out of the 
It's out of the New Testament Bible. And this is what I mean about uh, taking taking so-called sacred text figuratively at times, using your judgment to know when it's figurative and when it's to be taken at face value or literally or fundamentally as we sometimes refer to it. But the story is about Jesus um, having cured six lepers, one of his curative miracles. He cured six lepers. And, and the real story begins in, in that only one of them thanked him for it. So you're just cured of leprosy, and you know that this man uh, performed the miracle as the story goes. And uh, only one is grateful enough or thoughtful enough, uh, empathetic enough to go thank this man. And the others just take it as they do, you know, maybe uh, this is their just dessert. So expression of gratitude isn't within them. And what I took that parable to mean is that five out of six people uh, are not empathetic. So don't expect it. Don't go, if, if you are an, an empathetic person, if you are one who, who wants plenty and peace and win-win um, relationships in the world, don't expect it of five of the six people that you, that you see because it isn't there. That is just a fact of human psychology. And then you can relate to people on that level. You know, don't make it personal. Make it about ideas. If in conversation, I, I've been asked to appear on, on some podcasts specifically about rhetoric, uh, the, the third branch of the, the, the uh, uh, trivium. And to me, rhetoric, to me personally, the way I studied it is, is the way Aristotle explained it. And it's really about presenting your, your uh, uh, thoughts and opinions forcefully. Um, it's not a conversation. It's not give and take. But in a give and take conversation, the, the first thing I do is look to see if the person is listening to what I have to say or are they just waiting for me to stop so that they can talk? In other words, they're not listening. All they want to do is express. They don't want to learn. And I think possibly that that parable that I just mentioned uh, might be fairly accurate, that five out of people, five out of six people don't necessarily want to learn. And when you, when you come to peace with that, when you you personally come to peace with that. Uh, you don't experience so much road rage. You don't get upset with so many people or ideas or political parties or religions or whatever, because it is the, the, the fact of our existence at this time and in this place that we're, we're psychologically in that regard right now. Some of us, uh, have this ability to empathize and some of us don't. And uh, then you go back to working again, using your judgment to say, how, how can I uh, advantageously live in and with this situation? And you'll find yourself getting into far fewer conversations with people who are not listening to you and just waiting for you to finish speaking so that they can talk. But uh, it was another, uh, it was a Roman philosopher who came up in his, uh, his name doesn't come up uh, to me right now, but he made the observation that we have two ears and one tongue. And he took that to mean that possibly we should listen twice as much as we talk. So <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> I like that a lot. I'm in, uh, I'm in sales 
and uh i've been in sales for almost 10 years and like being able to listen to people has always helped me and like and i'll watch people who struggle and it's because they're not actually listening to what the person's saying to them yeah and it's uh and and it's interesting too is like learning to not be a a, a con man as uh zig ziglar would call it and actually being a real salesperson um because like it's it's helped me become a better person and made me want to be a better person because like i wanted to feel good I wanted to to feel win win. I wanted to uh-huh. like Stephen Covey's book really helped me out. Like that was kind of like where I started my path. Um, I was with actually a lot of like personal growth and self development books. Or um, I was a big fan of uh, Jim Rome and Aron and or and uh, Ogmandino. Ogmandino's books were were pretty good too. Like some Christian inspiration books and. Um, I think it, it's just kind of interesting, like the when I look at like when I started to actually invest in myself and really started to like care about myself and like my own education and like just kind of like my journey and where I'm at, and then even talking to you today, like it's you know you never stop learning. Like it's always like you always like will look back at something and say, oh that that does make sense now, or like I'll I'll be in a real life situation and uh, and I'll think of like something that I read in a leadership book randomly. And I'm like, this is what they were talking about. Yeah. This situation right here. Yeah. You'll start to integrate. Yeah. These ideas from all over the place. They're all saying the same thing. The same ideas being expressed in different ways. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Um, well, I tell you what, Gene, I'm going to wrap up, uh, this portion of the podcast. would love to have you again. It's been, um, been awesome talking to you. It's been very rewarding for me. I really, yeah, I hope uh, I hope the listeners get a lot out of this as much as I did. Um, but thank you so much for taking time out of your day to 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 talk to me and, and come on and and the kind words that you've shared with me and everything else like that. Like I, I really appreciate that. Well, it's been a it's been a real pl- pleasure, Drew. And uh, yeah, I hope we can do it again. That sounds good to me. Um, uh, um, oh, keep going. Are Are you going to sign off? Yeah, I was gonna sign off, but I was gonna keep talking to you if that was okay. I was gonna yeah, that's to you. what that's what I wanted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was gonna talk to you a little bit more. Right. Um, uh, okay, well, uh, do you, if people if people do want to contact you, are you open to having people contact you? Or um, do you well, know? they can they can still contact me at. Uh, I, I'm just not nearly as active. I'm I'm really starting to slow down again, uh, or for the first time. As I say, I'm I'm getting up there, but uh, if they want to have a look at uh, some of my source material, they can contact me at five three four trivium at gmail dot com five three four trivium at gmail dot com, and uh, I'll be happy to to uh, send some of my source material, and I've I've got a little writing. Uh, a little guidance in there, at least what what has helped guide me. I can't really get into conversation too much anymore. I'm just uh, it just takes me three times as long to do things now as as it did just a few years ago. So <laughs> forgive me for that. That's <laughs> part of the process of life. Though. There you go. Yeah, and I've been very fortunate to have lived life what I think is appropriately. Uh, when I was six or seven years old, as I say, I was always able to get along with older people. And I, I think I made it my life's goal to be a happy old man. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. And uh, everybody else, please tune in to another episode.
shots and different things.